0: As the world is writing a new story of global kinship, Postmodern Missionary dives into what it means to be a missionary pushing against the heritage of colonialism. Join Rev. Katie Meek as she explores life and faith in Sierra Leone. Hi friends, it's Katie coming at you again from Wayamba I'm just finishing up my three-week um, intensive course courses here in Moyamba. Um, But I wanted to uh, take a quick second to introduce this podcast. This is my friend, uh, Yasmin Ibrahim. And she is um, the one who taught me Creole. Um, I had a, uh, a United Methodist tutor for a little while and then she came into my life and I talk fine, fine Creole now, <laughs> more or less. <laughs> um, but she's also a really fascinating person um, and you'll get into um, some of the st- all of her story um, in a minute. But I wanted to, before we start, Give you an idea of what's coming, just in case you have kiddos in your car or house at the moment while you're listening. Um, We do get into some adult content in this specifically around um, female genital mutilation, which is a practice that happens in Sierra Leone, and um, some of the, the things surrounding those sorts of themes. So I wanted to let you know that that is coming. It's an important conversation, and it adds some color um, to what is, I think, a global conversation happening around the world. So um, I hope you enjoy this conversation. I think that Yasmin is a really fascinating individual Um, who um, kind of spans two continents and um, all kinds of gifts. So I think you'll enjoy it. Enjoy! And um, I'll let you introduce yourself, but my Creo teacher, so welcome. Thank you,
1: Katie. Uh, hi, listeners. I'm Yasmin Bilkis Abrime. I'm a Creole instructor, as Katie rightly said. I'm a language tutor, so I teach um, Creole, French, and English. Uh, so I run my business, which is called Mina Bilkis Co. We offer language services, language tutorial services, uh, consultancies, uh, photography, and I also have a Shea Butter business called Ori. Um, in addition to all of that, uh, I also run a nonprofit for adolescent girls called girl up Club Sierra Leone
0: yeah so you're a really fascinating human being Sierra Leonean but you're you're also you're a dual citizen right so you were born in the states um in Ohio in Illinois Illinois sorry sorry all yeah. those middle American states I do <laughs> um somebody asked me if I was from Ohio the other day and I was not Ohio they said Iowa and I was oh. like I'm sorry that is wrong. (laughs) I am from Texas. You don't ask a Texas girl if they're from Iowa. I love Iowa. Don't get me wrong, Mm -hmm. but you know how it is. All right. Um, so you're a dual citizen, American and Sierra Leonean. So like, how does that work? Um, I already said you were bo- where you were born, but like, what's your family history? Um, so my parents
1: are professors, so that's the reason actually why we've moved, you know, around the world. Um, so I was born in the states in Illinois, um, small town called Bloomington Normal. Um, Uh, I've lived in Sierra Leone roughly about seven years, uh, cumulatively, because I've been in and out. Uh, the States maybe 15, 16 years, and I was also partially raised in South Africa for four years, so yeah, I've been around. And, um, so my parents were Sierra Leonean, and my sister and I were born in the States. Uh, in terms of identity, it has been, um, it's been a journey overall. Um, more so because, um, you always have this kind of uh, notion, like, are you too American to be African? Are you too African to be American? But um, I found a way to find a home in both places. Um, Mm -hmm. In Africa, my home is definitely um, Sierra Leone and also South Africa as well. Um, uh, despite not having been back in 15 years, but it's still a home for me. And in the States, I definitely love the Midwest. I've schooled in Georgia. I've uh, went to college in Virginia, but definitely Illinois is Midwest. I would love to go back to the Midwest.
0: So in terms of like the years of your life, you've actually spent more years in the States. Yeah, I have. Yeah. But what I've noticed about you is that you, like your Creole is very good and you will, and 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 depending upon your uh, location you will like dip into a more Sierra Leone accent depending upon where you are. As well. Oh yeah definitely I think like language has the
1: ability to just kind of like change your personality so having been back as an adult for the past four years um, yeah I believe that my career has improved obviously um, the kind of work that I do with the um, grassroots movement it definitely has a, a, a um, It has an effect on my accent, both Creole and English. I don't think I sound as American as when I first came back.
0: Mm-hmm. So why did you come back? So okay, let me get the timeline right before before we get there. All right, so you were born in the states, and then after how many years did you come back to Sierra Leone? I came to Sierra Leone. I've, this is my third time moving
1: back to Sierra Leone.
0: My first time moving back to
1: moving to Sierra Leone, I was nine, so right after the war, that was in um, December two thousand one. Okay. Uh, the second time I came back to the states was um, I came back to Sierra Leone. Sorry, that was in two thousand six. I did like two years of high school here. Um, so, my mom had just uh, finished up with her uh, PhD. So, we decided to move back to Sierra Leone. So, we came here in 2006, and I left in 2009. And um, so, after college in 2014, I came back. So, yeah, I've been back since then.
0: Okay. So, what, like, why did you decide I don't want to make my adult life in America? I want to make it in Sierra Leone. Um, well, I guess at that time, you know, I
1: was actually just kind of lost, really. I was going just through some personal challenges and um, trials which you usually do in your early 20s. And I just decided that America didn't have what I wanted. And so my mom actually proposed, like, well, would you like to come home for six months and just see how things are? I was like, okay, well, I don't have anything to lose. I didn't have a job, you know. Um, I was like, okay. So I came home, uh, which was February 2014, and um, I was looking for employment. Fortunately, I live right by the U.S. Embassy, so I used to go to the um, the library. It's free for all nationals, you know. It doesn't matter. Uh, uh, where you're from. So I'd go there and use the... Um the computer, like, every day, and I came across a teaching, uh, a school, yeah, a teaching position, so I was like, okay, let me just keep myself occupied before I go back to the States, but then I loved it, I realized I really liked teaching, I tutored in college, but it it wasn't the same, actually, teaching kids something new, Mm. so um, then at that time, Ebola had already engulfed the country, but it hadn't yet entered the capital, so when it came to the capital in July 2014, and all schools were shut down immediately, um, I don't know, I guess this um sense of patriotism, um, mm-hmm. in terms of being a civilian came. Out. I was like, Well, I can't flee now, you know. And there are so many opportunities to volunteer with kids and with girls and that's how girl up also came about. So I guess that's why I decided to stay. Yeah. My six month trial was technically up, irrespective of Ebola. But I guess that was the reason why I decided to stay.
0: Right, you felt yeah. like a not just a personal connection, but like a loyalty. Yes, definitely, definitely. To Sierra Leone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit more about how um, how you feel like your worldview and identity are different, maybe different than Sierra Leoneans um, who have don't have your experience of having lived overseas, but then also just uh, like I, I feel like people like you have a certain unique perspective because of the way that you have moved from place to place. So can you tell me a little bit more about how you think that those experiences have formed your identity and how they're different than what, you know, one person who stayed the same place their whole life might have? Um, so people who are usually, um,
1: born and raised and live their entire adult life, um, in a small town or just the same town, going to the same schools with people, they, their attitudes and their ideologies don't really change. If they were, for example, if they were raised Muslim from birth, more than likely they'll end up being a practicing Muslim, you know, throughout their adulthood. Um, for me, you know, being raised as a Muslim, that was fine. You know, that was my upbringing. But as most people go through, you know, college, you go through different, Experiences. So at that time, I decided not to practice anymore. And then when I returned to the um, to Sierra Leone, I remained with the same sentiment. And it's very difficult to talk to other Sierra Leoneans. who are like, oh wow, so you're not Muslim or Christian, you know? Because the idea of religion is very dichotomized in a country like Sierra Leone. You have to be either or, or they assume you like you're a witch or something. Which I assure you, I'm not. Uh. But (laughs) just in case someone was wondering. But um, so just being some because I'm some. Someone who's very spiritual, you know. Not to sound corny or whatnot, but I don't like labels as agnostic either, because I do plan to practice again. But I like to read. You know, Katie and I always talk about, you know, the religious books, the Abrahamic books. So I read. You know, I read about Hinduism. I read about Buddhism. I love religion, but I just believe at this point maybe organized religion is not for me and when you discuss this with Sierra because for some reason it always comes up and this is like the three no-nos like in French culture which is probably why I like French Mm. um so no-nos to like religion you don't ask someone about their religion about their socioeconomic status which people seem to like to ask here and about Mm. their political background you know here it's either you're green or you're red I'm a third-party supporter and then when it comes to socioeconomic background so because I speak with an accent because I have the privilege to do certain things like take trips and you know uh, go to certain restaurants people assume a status about me which may or may not be true right so um, having to break down uh that assumption and break down that wall. In that sense, this assumption that uh, Serenians have built um, about me is a barrier. Mm-hmm. Because when I do go to certain events or something, and I try to talk to people, like, oh well, now I mean I'll translate. Oh, now which means, oh well, she's a bougie girl, mm-hmm. which is you know far from it. But um, it can be hard to actually. Um, blend and in an actual intricated, uh, society like Sierra Leone and actually talk to other Sierra Leoneans. So most of the people I hang out with, if not internationals or like expatriates to my clients, are usually Sierra Leoneans who are in quotes exposed. I, I don't really like that word, but it's what it is or cultured Sierra Leoneans or Sierra Leoneans from a more privileged background. So right. that's usually how I navigate day-to-day life in Sierra Leone.
0: Yeah, I, and it is it is kind of true that, like, um, even when you are buying things in Sierra Leone, if they, I mean, my skin gives me away as someone who was likely not born here. Although, I do, I mean, I do kind of look Lebanese, and so I, I've had a friend who was like, you know what, you get better with your Creole accent, they're just going to assume that you're Lebanese because the Lebanese community is pretty strong here. But even still, there is a separation between, like, Quotes Sierra Leoneans and the Lebanese community, even if they've been here three or four generations. Yeah, absolutely. So, like, when you're downtown... For example, buying something. Um, I, I mean, I I think you um, are Sierra Leonean. You look Sierra Leonean, but I would imagine that your accent gives you away a little bit. And they, um, in some ways, try and cheat you, like they would, like they would an American. They they see it. They see an expat coming, and they're like, oh, I'm gonna raise the price times three. And and I like I I don't know if we've had this conversation, but I've had this conversation with Sierra Leoneans who might have a different accent or something like that, that that they'll that that they kind of treat you a little bit like an outsider too.
1: Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, just like what you were saying, let's say, for example, because most of the time I'm always on the phone with my sister. So I, my sister and I converse in English. So I'm in town, um, you know, dead Freetown, and I'm speaking in English. So I get off the phone to talk to the vendor, and they're like, oh, so yes, ma'am, what do you want? I'm like, uh-uh, at least mm-hmm. I want, as in yeah. that's what I want. So automatically, you know, they have this notion, oh, you know, she's um, in, in Freetown, we say JC. JC is just come. Mm-hmm. So someone who just came from, you know, somewhere abroad, uh, mostly like the States or the UK so definitely or sometimes um, because I'm aware of this new privilege I have because it's not something I have in the States in the States I'm just black but you know here I have an edge up because I speak with an accent so in certain places like if I go to someone's work and I need the work to be done efficiently I will speak in English because Mm -hmm. if I speak in Korea there's no they're going to give me the run around oh you get it in a week's time so if I speak in English with a certain urgency they assume I'm not from here so then they will try to impress me Mm -hmm. So, you know, sometimes I, I play it both ways. So right. it works in my favor sometimes. Sometimes it doesn't. Right.
0: Well, it is interesting. I, like this week, I'm teaching my students about um, the difference between um, warm climate cultures and cold climate cultures when it comes to communication style. And so you saying that you you speak with uh, you speak in English with the American accent and also with a sense of urgency, like that to me, that translates as direct. Like we speak more directly. Um, and, and in Sierra Leone, own, they kind of tend to speak in circles, um, and and it's about being friendly. Mm -hmm. Um, But when you come with a sense of urgency and speak directly, then they recognize you as someone who functions on a different level than they do. Exactly. So that is interesting. So I used to do some work in the Hispanic community, because as you know, I'm from Texas, which I'm very proud of. And so... In the Hispanic community specifically, I was always drawn to um, the second generation kids, not necessarily the first generation immigrants who um, were born and raised in Mexico or wherever and then came here and their culture is pretty well set. But it's kind of the second generation who's had to code switch and who's had to like as a young person, maybe even translate for their parents, you know, that sort of thing where they have to navigate the world and have the skills to navigate the world that they're in in a different way than their parents. Um, but at the same time, it is it is as as though they don't, it's like they belong in both places because they have the ability to code switch. They can do the American English thing and then they can also in the home speak Spanish and all of that. So it's like they belong in two pla- both places, but at the same time, both sides are saying, well, you're not really one of us. Right. So has that been, have you had that experience um, coming from both sides or has it been a little different for you?
1: No, I definitely um, resonate with um, the same thing that the Hispanic Americans go through. Absolutely. Can remember when I went back to the States. So this was after I moved to Sierra Leone for the first time. And um, so I went back to the States in 2003. Mm -hmm. So at that time, um, not to give my age away, but we were the first class to be integrated into sixth grade, Um, sixth grade being integrated into middle school, I mean. So at that time, um, sixth grade was still a part of uh, elementary school. So we were the yeah. guinea pigs, basically. And uh, so when I went to school the first day, everyone was saying what schools they went to or like what counties they came from or what states, if they came from out of state. So obviously I didn't know what all that meant, having not being raised in the states at the time. So when it came to my turn, and I spoke with a very prominent South African accent at the time, and um, they're like, oh, where'd you come from? I was like, oh, I went to international school in um Sierra Leone oh where's that Uh, in West Africa oh you're from Africa girl I'm like oh goodness so of course all the ridiculous questions I get like you know Tarzan, Lion King, that kind of crap Wow. but um, after that uh, because Illinois is a very small state you know Midwest uh, early 2000s we didn't have a lot of Africans you know African Americans yes but continental Africans I believe at the time at least I was the only self identifying African I would say that proudly you know every Friday Mm -hmm. I rocked Ankara you know no yeah of course I had to but um
0: and by Ankara you mean yes Africana yes Yes.
1: so um to my knowledge yes I believe I was the only African at no 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 no, no. I I take that back there were a few Congolese but they did not identify as being Mm -hmm. um, African yes I was the only self identifying African in my grade anyways and um so people would ask you know every presentation I had in social studies I made sure to talk about any African country you know mostly Sierra Leone but if I couldn't, I'll talk about Ghana or something. From that end, I guess, no, I had a lot of friends, you know, I had some of the Congolese-Americans, I had uh, white friends, I had some African-American friends, so I didn't feel that much out of place, because America um, prides itself on being a melting pot, so no, especially in Illinois that, you know, everyone likes everyone, no, no problem, but in Sierra Leone, I feel like I stuck out very, very prominently here, you know, Um, irrespective of going to an international school, so I saw people like me, but when I would attend tutoring classes, because I took extra classes in French and in English and in my other subjects, so um, yes, that became, I became very self-aware that, oh, um, I'm not like other Sierra you know. But I mean, I always said, okay, just irrespective of where I was born, we're all Sierra But as I came to realize, a lot of Sierra don't feel that way. And I still feel that way sometimes. But at this point, I don't feel like I have anything to prove. I'm 26, you know, I'm fine. I, I know who I am. Mm-hmm. I'm self-aware, so that's okay. But I also am aware, as I'm sure other people do, especially, you know, white people who are in Africa. I'm aware of the certain privileges I have. Right. So I am sure I'm aware of not to accept That either. So, yes, in Sierra Leone, I say I do feel like I'm an outsider looking in sometimes, but in the States, at least back then, when in high school and in college, no, no, I I felt just like everyone else felt. Mm -hmm. I felt accepted. Yeah.
0: Well, and as you were talking, just like the way that you speak, um, not your accent, but, but your vocabulary and then the way that you form words and all of that. Um, I mean, number one, you can tell that you come from an ac- ap- academic family. But I think also just the quality of your education separates you um, in some ways, which is not necessarily a bad thing. But I think at the same time, that it's, uh, it's just an added challenge. That's it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Talking about being um, an African expat in the states, um, do you think that because you say that you wore it proudly? So, do you think that African expats in the U.S., so essentially the African what, what they call the diaspora, right? So, people who um, who who have roots in Africa uh, and then immigrated to the states, do you think that they're treated or viewed differently in the U.S. than African Americans?
1: oh yes definitely you know especially in um in the states i forgot to mention this i realize a lot of people assume because i'm african i come from money Mm. And I could go shopping and buy something that maybe is twenty dollars or fifty dollars, and you'd I would have an African American clerk be like mm-hmm, them Africans they got money, mm. and I've been in that situation. <laughs> true story. True story. Oh. But um no, but I don't think at least for my family I don't think my family would um label themselves as expats mostly because they're not in foreign service they're academics as I mentioned before, right. but um for the. Um, the kids of African expats that I didn't meet you know, diplomats uh, and some sort um, yes I do think it's different they do one you know the ignorance is very mm, high in the states as we know mm-hmm. so some people would assume I'm royalty you know I've been asked once or twice am I a princess of some sort wow Mm-hmm. You would, you would think college students asking these questions
0: interesting but, well you um, do you, you do have like a royal something oh well you yeah, I mean you yes, do thank, you're you very know, thank you <laughs> <laughs> but um, in terms
1: of being treated differently yes I, I am aware of that to a certain degree maybe because I didn't have a lot of African American friends in the states mostly because like what you said the same thing here I guess people um, okay I think maybe this is just a, a black thing perhaps black Americans as an African American and continental Africans born and raised and stayed in their respective countries, they have this feeling that black people who immigrate to their country come from a higher socioeconomic background. So in both countries, I have, yes, I have gotten that treatment that I must be of the 1%, or at least the higher middle class, right? because I can go between both countries and because I hold both citizenship. So yes, definitely, that's one thing I have observed from both countries. That's very
0: interesting. That's very interesting. Like, I wouldn't have, th- I, that's new information to me. I wouldn't have thought that. Um, just because I think that, um, among Anglo people in the States, there's a certain amount of prejudice against just immigration in general. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so the idea that within the African American community, what they see is, Is um, a difference socioeconomically as as though you're you're above, because I think from the white community, just across the board, most of the time we see um, immigrants and think, um, and 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 there is an sometimes an embedded bias against. But you seem to have. I mean, I I would imagine that it makes you just stronger across the board. Oh yeah, you have to be. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you are who you are. I am. Which is one of the things I like about you. Thank you. Mm Hmm. Um, you're an eight, by the way. Anybody who's into the Enneagram. Yes, I'm a challenger, so uh, she said. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I'm forcing all my people in Sierra Leone to, um, to learn their number. Um, so anyway, I literally did force you, didn't I? I? Like I was we we, we we went to the beach and yes. I was like, we're listening to this podcast and you're going to tell me what you think. I was like, okay. I was like, yes, I resonate with an eight. I was between, I think, an eight and a three, but yeah, ultimately yes. I
1: chose an eight, definitely. Mm-hmm.
0: talked about why you decided to come back after graduating college. So tell us about Girl Up. Like what is Girl Up and um, how did it come about? Yeah, so um, so Girl Up is
1: actually a, a UN, a United Nations Foundation campaign. And uh, Girl Up Club started in the States in 2010. So when I returned in 2014, I knew I wanted to uh, be involved with girls. I just didn't know what. So at the time, obviously, we're tackling Ebola, so we had to deal with that. Mm-hmm. But then after that, um, I made a very good friend at the U.S. Embassy that I was always going to, the library. And he told me, his name is Jabi. So Jabi told me about Girl Up Clubs because he wanted to start something. And I read more about it, and then I read there wasn't a chapter in Sierra Leone, and he was like, oh, he kept on, the same thing with Katie, uh, you know, pushing me to start the Enneagram, the same thing with Jabi, you know, he pushed me to um, to start Girl Up, I was like, okay, fine, you know, so I was trying to get my research, you know, I'm I'm very theoretical that way, so anyways, so four months of figuring out how this will go through, you know, the legal process of registering it in Sierra Leone, so um, in October 2015, um, the U.S. Embassy asked me to facilitate the the International Day of the Girl Child. So yeah. there were four schools present. Uh, there was the Vine Memorial Secondary School for Girls, which is where Girl Up is. Uh, there was Freetown Secondary School for Girls. Uh, there was St. Joseph's Convent, and there was Methodist Girls High School. So um, at this time, I was definitely certain I was going to start Girl Up at um, Freetown Secondary School for Girls because that's my mom's alma mater. Um, I didn't mm-hmm. go to a public school in Sierra Leone. So with that in mind, I was like, okay, I split the girls into four different categories to talk about um, issues affecting the girl child in Sierra Leone, and the speaker from Vine just blew me away. Mm-hmm. And I was like, ah, oh, FSS, FSSG, who? I was like, no, let's go to Vine. So I talked to the speaker, and she said they didn't have any girl empowerment clubs at her school, and I said, okay. So we spoke weekly. That was in October. And um, the academic year that year had started in January because Ebola had messed up the academic year. So school started in October, the 2015-2016 academic year. So I went down to the school. I talked with the administration, um, the principal and the vice principal. They're very receptive, mm-hmm. which um, was very uh, surprising to me. As I said, Sierra Leoneans are, we're very friendly people, you know, Top 10 friendly people, hospital people, uh, hospitable people Mm -hmm. in the world. Google us. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Google it. (laughs) But when it comes to diasporans, they're not as receptive as they are of, you know, uh, um, internationals, you know, white people, basically. And um, I was very happy that they were very supportive of me starting Girl Up at their school. So they asked me to talk to their general populace, which is about like 300 girls at the middle school level. So I did. And at the end of the week, about 23 girls signed up. So I worked with those 23 girls um, because I didn't know what I was really doing, to be honest. And I didn't want to um, project or instill my preconceived notions of what things should be like. I was like, well, this is for girls. I need to hear their voice. So for six months, I just kind of studied them. You know, um, they told me what they need. You know, in terms of social things, cultural things that they wish would change, economically, you know, to be empowered, all of that. So from there, that's when I was able to um, create a monthly curriculum for them. So like even when I travel and whatnot, we have some volunteers. You know, the club is two and a half years old now, so that's it's doing well. So I usually leave the curriculum with the, the volunteers, and then they take it up from there. So um, the club essentially. It um, it aims to empower uh, to promote the health, safety, leadership, and education um, through community outreach, advocacy, and public speaking. So um, we have five projects a year because we're a UN foundation, so we have to do five projects a year and report to the UN. So um, in between that, we do fundraisers. So usually we sell, like, um, uh, wristbands or postcards, but this year we want to be more creative, you know, with um, cutback from, you know, every... Agency, so you know, uh, soliciting funding is getting harder, so Mm -hmm. we have to be more creative with our fundraising techniques. So the girls want to, you know, bake cakes and stuff. So a lot of offices said, Oh, yeah, we'll buy. Obviously, who doesn't want to buy goodies from girls? Right. So, um, So that's basically what uh, we do. So we meet uh, every Friday. So once a week, we meet for an hour and a half or two. And depending on what that topic is, like uh, it's October now. So October, it's mental health because mental health day is October 10. And then Mm. October 11 is International Day of the Girl Child. So we basically talk about mental health issues and issues affecting the girl child. Um, So that's what we've been doing so far this month. Uh, We've been recruiting new members because schools just resumed like three weeks ago. So we have our new members that uh, we've accepted. Uh, just uh, yesterday so we'll be working with them so that we can do the five projects and the fundraising events and so on so that's basically the gist of um, Girl Up Um, we meet with them every Friday Um, they're trained in computer uh, literacy skills so they know how to use Microsoft Often, not the new girls, they will be trained next month but um, our focus is on menstrual health um, mental health of course and uh, digital rights
0: Okay. That feels like a lot, honey. It is. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm interested in the mental health stuff because, but before we get there, I, I do, like, you talk about issues facing young girls in Sierra Leone. Like, what are those issues? Um, It
1: ranges from teenage pregnancy to child marriage to uh, female genital mutilation, FGM. Which is pretty, is like real common. Yeah, here. very, very prevalent in Sierra Leone. About 86% of girls are subjected to FGM Ooh. under the age of 15. Yeah. And the the um, the legal the legalities behind it is that a woman, because at 18 you're a woman uh, on paper, uh, so at 18 you can voluntarily uh, undergo FGM. I don't know why, but yes, you can. It's a cultural thing. So, um, but there's no law that says um, it shouldn't happen at all. So that's what the FGM activists um, are, uh, anti-FGM activists, of course, are trying to rally for, you know, just the eradication of the practice in general mm. but it's so politically tied you know cause that's how a lot of political votes are, are 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 got you know are won you know through promising the soways, through promising the grassroots that certain cultural practices will continue to stay
0: if they're elected into office so it's a tough battle so in some ways they're a strong lobby Oh, yeah, no, definitely. uh, So, okay, can you, I I don't want to ask too much because I know that, like, essentially this is a function of secret societies and that sort of thing, but, like, can you explain to us why they do it? Uh, Essentially, I guess, in a nutshell, the the
1: rationality behind it is that um, those with an uncut clitoris, um, you are prone to promiscuous lifestyles, which uh, which is the rationality behind it. So, okay. if it is snipped or at least altered or basically mutilated, then that would prevent you. You would be
0: a um, a faithful housewife or a wife, you know. Um, but it's the women, It's it's the female community that does it to other females. Exactly. So, do you think that that is? I mean, like I I know in the states, I like in in my seminary we talked about. Um, uh it was in my ethics class of all things but but we we talked about the cycle of women um being hard on other women as a way of protecting them mm-hmm. um as you know it's it's one of those things where it's like like we don't want we don't want our daughters to face the social backlash. And so we will keep them in line, um, as a, as a way of, but in, in the process that essentially just perpetuates the status quo. So do you think that's it? Or do you think it's something else? Cause there's, there's the other side of it, which is, you know, the secret societies, especially are big on ritual and, and kind of, um, coming of age ritual and that sort of thing, which I think is a great thing. I mean, I, I think I'm, ritual in general is a good thing but when it's attached to this other piece it feels very unhealthy so like why do you think that the 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 women's community is the one who does it to other women okay um
1: oh so i'll answer this in two parts so like you said i think the um the rite of a passage is a very beautiful thing it happens in all african um cultures you know and backgrounds so i'm not against the society itself you know i if that's what you want to do you know it's beautiful but i'm against the cutting aspect obviously, because that's a human rights violation. So um, to answer your question, the reason why the cycle continues, is because it's like abuse, basically. You know, mm-hmm. if um, my parents abuse me, obviously I'm going to abuse my offspring, my offspring will abuse his or her children, etc. And no one will be bold enough to break the, abuse, you know, and people always, you know, you you would meet other people who have undergone it, you know, not those who, I think it's also attached to education, but I won't say that because I know some prominently educated women that I won't uh, name drop that are, you know, pro FGM campaigners, believe it or not, because they believe it's a cultural thing, and it's a beautiful thing, but it's like, if they did it to me, I'll say this in Creole just because of the nuances, and I'll translate, oh, if they do unto me, why me seth no for do unto me pekin? Meaning if, you know, I've undergone why shouldn't my child you know undergo the same thing that's just life you know they won't think to question like oh why should I stop this you know why is this different but I mean my mom underwent it because that's what you do in the 60s you know coming from that background Mm -hmm. but she made the conscious decision not to have her two daughters were her only children her two daughters not to undergo it you know and I well, if I have a daughter, I won't do that, obviously. And that's our cycle being broken. Right. So I guess it's just a matter of someone breaking that cycle. and But because, you know, it's such a culturally embedded practice, they won't. In yeah. most cases, they won't. Yeah. So this is why it still has seen the, you know, 2018, basically.
0: Right. So it's more of a question of tradition. Like, it worked for me, it'll work for my kid. Exactly. Um. Yeah. I can understand that. But at the same time, like the, 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 the way that they do it sometimes, because they use the same knife, right? Mm-hmm. And so then that causes problems as well. Yeah, definitely. Like physical problems for, like, even if it doesn't have, ca- like, it could cause infection and children to HIV
1: die. death, yes. Right.
0: Mm-hmm. But then also later on in life, it can cause challenges during sexual encounters. Yes. It can cause issues during pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Um, so lots of those sorts of things. So, I and it feels to me like I've heard people say, well, if you're going to do it, at least do it more. Safely, if
1: I mean, if that's possible, yeah, because none of these uh, soies are medics, you know, right? So, like you said, it's either the same instrument, probably a blade or whatever that they use on all the initiates. So, um, I and I've been asked this question like, can people go to the hospital? Yes, you know, in some I had a, a girl at like Girl Up, she said. Uh, she was kidnapped and she was taken to Guinea and it was performed at a hospital because, you know, it's a big cultural thing, so you can do it at hospitals. Wow. But in Sierra Leone, to my knowledge, I don't know. I don't know that much uh, yeah. because my work is not actually focused on FGM, but I do support them, of course, but... um uh, no, I don't know okay. how it's done to
0: Okay, so you say, let's see, um, you said teenage pregnancy is an issue mm-hmm. with girls. Um, dropping out as well. Dropping out um, of
1: school. Child marriage, um, FGM, as we've just discussed. Um, just maybe the, the economic empowerment in general, yeah. because right now I have a girl. Um, I won't name her obviously because she's a minor. So I have a girl, X. And um, so we had our meeting yesterday. So X came, she came quite late. And I said, What happened, X? And she said, Well, her father and her mother split up, and um, the mother has gone. And so she's mm-hmm. staying with her father. And the father said, Well, he can't really provide for her. So he's asked her until school resumes because she was one of the students that took the Becca exam. So the Becca exam is the basic um, education certificate exam and you take that in 8th grade in Sierra Leone to go to high school so you can switch high schools uh, switch schools basically <laughs> and um so she took that in June so because the marking scheme there the they're, they're overwhelmed, you know. they're not a lot of teachers, to grade, thousands of students. So they have this huge hiatus basically from uh, June to December, and they don't resume school till January. So she's in this unfortunate situation for six months, and this is where the teenage pregnancy rate is very high. A lot of kids drop out because of this. So um, until she goes back to school in January, so she's selling, she's selling um, food. Um, okay. Yeah, so that's what she's doing to get by. And I asked her, I was like, is that profitable for you? It's like, well, she's making about 25,000 leons. I mean, if I converse in dollars, that's like $3, which sounds like nothing. But in terms of the day-to-day serial, it's a lot, because right. the average Syrian lives on 5,000 leons a day. Uh, I think the average minimum wage per day is 15,000 leons. So she's right. doing well in terms of the national average. So that's what she's using to save up, to buy her books, to buy her pens and her bags and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So I said, okay. So she is one of our beneficiaries, so she will be sponsoring next year as we're trying to solicit funding but um yeah that's one issue you know economic empowerment you know Mm -hmm. and I'm glad that she's been able we teach financial literacy um but I'm glad that she's been able to do that herself so okay if I have 25,000 subtract that from transportation you know how much can I save so she's doing quite well with that so I'm proud of her
0: that's amazing so, I know that you're big on um, educating girls about menstruation and reproductive health. Like, why is that something that you think is so important here? Why is it necessary here? Uh, it's necessary here because um,
1: in Sierra Leone, about 80% of girls, um, and women too, um, they don't use um, hygienic sanitary materials um, during their menses. A lot of them just use um, rags, you know, um, cloth that they've used probably from their first menses till their adulthood. So, um, and that is prone to a lot of infection because um, most of the time, I'm sure the cloth is not even cleaned properly. So... We have a dry season uh, and a wet season, so when it's raining and they leave it in a in a damp room, you know, it's prone to fungi, and yeah. that's, you know, prone to infection.
0: I mean, th- things take three or four days to dry here during the rainy Oh, yeah, season.
1: definitely. It is. Whew, it's yeah. a challenge to get some Sometimes, dried. like,
0: a week. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. hmm Yeah. Forget
1: about wearing jeans. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it'll take forever to dry. So, um... Uh, yeah, and menstruation has always been a um, a topic I've because I mean, being the challenger that I am. I've Mm -hmm. just always been the one to talk about my menses, you know, in a classroom full of boys. Like, oh, why are you so sad today, Aspen? Well, you know, my ovum just erupted today. How about Mm -hmm. you? So, (laughs) being me. So, I was like, okay, well, I have no problems talking about menstruation. I tweet about it all the time. People see me. Hashtag menstruation matters. Because it does. And this is why um, it's a key topic for us at Girl Up. Um, There's an entire month dedicated to it. So, that's uh, amazing. It's in May. Mm -hmm. So, May 28th is uh, Menstrual Hygiene Day. So, that's the reason why I, I decide to talk about it because sexuality is such a taboo subject in Sierra Leone and in a lot of countries in the world but especially in an African society like Sierra Leone mm-hmm. they need to talk to uh, about sexuality and reproductive rights with someone. Right. So I'm like that big sister. That they tell me like, Oh, you know, I saw this today or a guy said this today or I felt this today. What does it mean? Mm-hmm. So, you know, we talk about it. And because it's a safe space, you know, I don't disclose any names or tell their parents, but I'm glad they're asking these questions because I don't want them to find out through media, which is very misleading or other friends who don't know what they're talking about because we've all been there. Right. So, um, yeah, that's the reason why it's so important, you know, because I've seen girls, girls say that, um, They couldn't, um, they had to sacrifice their lunch or they had to sacrifice the transportation fee so they could buy pads because it's either or, you know, the family's thinking of it as, well, you're already a girl. Be happier in school. We're already giving you lunch and, um, transportation. You want us to give you monthly pads too? They don't. So all our beneficiaries receive pads um for free you know as long as they're in the club so i think that's very important as well because it gives them something to look forward to as well definitely and like oh i I get free pads i mean it may not be a lot but at least it's you know because everything is rising Mm -hmm. you know so at least if they have that you know and um you know access to tissues and soap because in sierra leone you know Access to water is a huge issue, right. you know. So a lot of NGOs, you know, they do their best, you know, establishing wash centers and what, which is great. But yes, I've been in like high-end offices again, not to embarrass anyone. I won't say names. And I go there. There's no running water. Yeah. And I try to be very environmentally friendly as possible. So I use a menstrual cup. And for those who may not know what a menstrual cup is, it's a silicone cup that you insert in your vagina and um, maybe depending on your flow, so you dispose of the contents. Blood, um, maybe every two to four hours. I would say that's safe. And um, for me, because you know, disposing of the pad, finding somewhere to discreetly, of course,
0: right? Because uh, they don't always have like like bins, yeah, no. trash cans in the in in the bathrooms and any of that, yeah. At
1: all. So for me, using a menstrual cup is the best way, you know. So I always have a bottle of water, anyways, just in case I go to an office and I'm like, oh goodness, what do I do? Right. And I have some tissue or something. So yeah. So for me, um. Ironically, uh, using a menstrual cup in Sierra Leone is the best thing for me because mm-hmm. having to dispose of the of the um, the used pad is difficult. Right. It's a challenge, and the girls say it as well. Their bathrooms are not very clean at the schools uh, because you're you're in a environment with over 300 girls, and they're coming from different socioeconomic backgrounds. As a result, different hygiene uh, priorities and backgrounds. So. One girl may have an access to a toilet in her house, but another may not. She might have a borehole. Right. So the bathrooms are not always up to code to the next person's, you know, liking. So a lot of girls say, well, they keep the use pad all day. Mm-hmm. So who knows what other infections they may be prone to, right. though they're using, you know, the correct sanitary material, such as a disposable one. Right. So, yeah, so that's why I... Um, it's a big issue for me and that's why I decided to educate girls on that
0: well and I think even just because teenage pregnancy is such a big deal here educating girls as to how to not get pregnant Mm. um, so that they can actually plan for their lives and continue to go to school and all of those things is a big piece of it too um Like I remember in the states, I was working with a young woman, and uh, she was getting married, and still in college. And she promised her mother that they wouldn't get pregnant. Um, Like the only way her mother was going to bless the the union was that they wouldn't get pregnant. And um, and I and I said and I looked at her and I said and Do you know how to not get pregnant? And she didn't. Um, And she was a member of the immigrant community. And so I do think that you know people who have a lot of education don't realize that that sometimes young women really legitimately don't know how to plan for um, their futures when it comes to that sort of thing. It just kind of they just assume something's going to happen. I don't know what they assume, but like the fact that they just don't know. No, that no, that's absolutely true. Um, young women, yeah, even
1: myself, when I came back to Maryland, I didn't know that much about reproductive um, health rights, but um, I feel like you have to actively seek out these services you know mm-hmm. to be educated you can't just say, oh well I'm a woman you know I know how things work mm-hmm. so yeah so being very well educated with your um, with your body and being self aware is very important so you can right. you know prevent yourself from an unwanted pregnancy or STIs and STDs
0: right or just a health issue in general like in just general. teaching people to know what's mm-hmm. going on with their bodies mm-hmm. um, and I think that's a un- very very empowering thing empowering thing especially for young women um, because so often they just kind of feel like their bodies are for someone else's pleasure Definitely. Um, and you know that's just it just invites more violence against them so i think that's really wonderful all the things you're doing Thank um you. all right so you just had a tedx talk like we had the first tedx in sierra leone here and you were invited to give a talk I was. Congratulations. That's a big deal. Thank you. Um, so how did that go? Um, what was that experience like? Oh, good. It
1: was, um, overwhelmingly humbling, humbling when they asked me to be a speaker. I was like, yes, of course. It's TEDx. Um, so it was great. You know, the reason why I really like this group of people. So it was a TEDx, uh, youth group. So all of the organizers, they were under the age of 30, which I thought was brilliant because mm-hmm. we, there's this notion that, you know, um, young African millennials are entitled. We're lazy, as Buhari says, you know. So there's just so many um, notions against us. There's so many narratives against us. So this event was changing that narrative, especially in Sierra Leone, you know. Our economy is at a standstill. You know, we have a new president. We have a new administration, which is all good, but things are not moving at the rate that they should be. And a lot of the youths are disgruntled. So when this event came around, it was just... Um, it was just a breath of fresh air Mm -hmm. and so it was held at um, the bank complex in King Tom and just like other TEDx events in the world there are only 100 people that are allowed to so they are allowed to view it live everyone else will have to view it on their respected devices. So, um, it was an application process and, um, it was great. When you entered, you, you knew that this was professional in the sense that it was international, you know, it was global, Mm -hmm. but you still felt like you were in Sierra Leone. So the authenticity of the event was still maintained because Africans, I feel, not just Africans, but people of color, black people, when we climb up the socioeconomic ladder, we feel that we need to leave some of our cultural things behind because we need to be refined, as they say. We Mm. need to be cultured. So... With the, and I've seen other TEDx events and it has been very whitewashed. But ours was like we had a Sierra Leone band come in, you know, we had the dance troupe. I was like, ah, Disney Saloon. Yeah. This is Sierra Leone. Yeah. And I was moved to tears, honestly. You know, we had uh local artists perform, uh we had local food being served. So it was great. They really brought it. Uh there were 11 other sp- there were 10 other speakers sorry and it was great. Uh they spoke about different issues. I spoke about creating safe spaces in the global south. So essentially I talked about girl up. Um a lot of people talked about um education you know the learning for the sake of learning uh people talked about the recipes for success so people had different stories you know things that were either abstract or actual um initiatives that they're that are ongoing so Mm -hmm. it was a very beautiful experience you know very uplifting and sterling supporting other sterlingians so it was good it was a very good event overall that's awesome
0: and it's available online as well so i'll try and i'll i'll try and link it Please do. to um to the to the webpage cuz it just came out this week mm-hmm. i think yeah i did um all right so of course by the time this airs it will have been a couple of months ago probably but <laughs> you get the idea um okay so you talked a little bit about your faith Uh, and, and your upbringing, um, as a, as a Muslim woman. And, um, so I'm, I'm wondering what it was like because you, you were hijab, right? Like you used to wear, um, you, you used to cover your head. Right? No, no, no. Oh, you never did. No, I didn't. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. I thought I thought you did. Um, okay. So my question is, what what was the experience of being a Muslim in the United States, and what is the experience of being a Muslim here? I know right now you're not practicing, but at the same time you come from a Muslim family, and um, you know, culturally speaking, that's that's a part of your family and life too. So can you tell us what's what was the experience in the U.S.? What is it here?
1: Uh, in the states. Um it's definitely a lot harder to be Muslim because, um, as most people know, um, Muslims cannot eat pork, you know, or any byproduct of a pig. So, a lot of the um, food and a lot of the um, the candy has uh, gelatin. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people may not know, but a lot of vegans and vegetarians or health-conscious people know that gelatin most likely is derived from pig fat. Right. It, sometimes it will specify if it's... Um, uh, it's like cow fat or something right but okay. more if it says gelatin it, from the United States it'll be pig fat but in the UK and in Europe they're more you know health conscious about that so if it's gelatin more than likely it's cow fat so it's safe there hmm. so I'd always be the one checking oh my god does it have gelatin does it have you know mm-hmm. any derivatives of you know pig or something so it is definitely a bit more challenging in terms if you have a sweet tooth but um day-to-day because uh, living in posts I I can't talk about being pre-9-11 because I was less than five years old. But post-9-11, I know it was definitely different because um, when I moved back in 2003, so two years after 9-11, my mom was in the States. My mom was always hijabi, you know, before. But then after, when she was studying, um, doing her PhD, I remember the first thing I said when I saw her when I got to the airport, because my sister and I were unaccompanied when we flew back. So when we got to the airport um, in Chicago, O'Hare, I was like, oh, mama, you don't have your hijab. And that was a big shock for me because I've never seen my mom unveiled in public. You know, I was like, oh, my goodness. But then she explained to me, you know, with the anti-Muslim sentiment and Islamophobia growing in the States, it was just not a safe thing, even though Illinois was relatively safe. But in general, it wasn't. So a lot of Muslim women had to unveil at that time. Mm. So um, going to school in middle school, I mean, it was okay. Um, It was... Not awkward, but I always, you're always very aware that you're the Muslim kid because one, I was practicing and like doing Ramadan, not, I mean, I, I observed fasting. So, but I didn't want to be in the cafeteria because my non Muslim friends would always be like, oh so you can't eat. You know, mm-hmm. so I, I didn't like that all being pitied. So I will just go to the library and study or do homework or whatever. So I always had a pass from my teacher for the month of Ramadan and, and I would go, that was fine in um, middle school. But when I moved to Georgia, oh, that was different, you know. So because it's it's Georgia, come on, it's from the South.
0: Yes. Katie, you,
1: come on now, I it's know. the Bible Belt. Yeah, so. yeah
0: exactly, it's very oh, Christian. Goodness
1: gracious me, so this was different.
0: And, um,
1: There was this librarian who I didn't like, and she didn't like me for whatever reason either. So I had the pass, you know. The principal gave me the pass. But then sometimes it was lonely, you know. So I would go to the cafeteria sometimes and talk to my friends. And they understood, so they didn't pity me, you know. It was a different mindset. But then sometimes I'm like, ah, well, sometimes I get hungry. So I'll go to the library, you know, to evade temptation. And I'll get that weird look like, oh, sometimes you decide to be here, sometimes you don't. I'm like, well woman, <laughs> it's none of your business. But you know, so that was a bit challenging in Georgia. In college, um, no, it wasn't because there were other Muslim kids and there was a Muslim student association and there was a um because our university used to be Baptist, but then um it became non-denominational. So the chapel, which was basically interfaith, you know, you had the um, a synagogue section, you had a mosque section, you had everything you had a temple. So mm-hmm. it was fine. It was interfaith. So that was that worked for me perfectly in university. But in Sierra Leone now, even though I'm not practicing it, I mean it's fine, you know, people are very um aware. We are a very religiously tolerant country. Another thing you can Google, mm. and um, so yeah, we celebrate both Muslim holidays and both Christian holidays, right. so it's it's fine in Sierra Leone. It's in the states that it's more of a challenge because um, well, now I guess now living in the states. I'm happy I don't, you know, uh, with a lot of Islamophobia going on in the States. I can imagine it being difficult, um, but my sister is um, in the States now, she's a university student, and she tells me some of the challenges that um, other Muslim kids, openly Muslim kids in the sense that they're hijabi and stuff she practices loosely but um, she's in New Jersey so New Jersey is relatively liberal she goes to a liberal university so it's not like she's heckled or anything, but there are just certain things and that you, you are aware of being Muslim American certain things you say, certain things you don't say so I guess you just have to be more mindful in a country like in the States but in Sierra Leone you know everything goes so it's Mm -hmm. okay I'm comfortable here in terms of religion
0: yeah Mm -hmm. I mean when 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 I first moved here I guess before I moved here that was one of the things that Google told me is that it's one of the known to be one of the most religiously tolerant um places in the world so like you know, Muslims and Christians will marry each other Mm -hmm. all the time. And, um, they'll have a Christian ceremony and a Muslim ceremony. Yep. I heard an example during, I think maybe it was Ramadan where a Christian family invited their Muslim friends over to break fast. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, that sort of thing that, that happens a lot here. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, uh, you are a teacher at heart what does it mean to you to be an academic in Sierra Leone, kind of knowing the education system that's here? Um, what do you think is the value of your education, your parents' education? Tell us what they teach and, and like why do you think that it's important here? Um, so my
1: parents, um, my mother teaches gender studies, and my father is a historian. Both uh, PhD. Both yeah. PhD holders, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, post-colonial historian. And um, in a country like Sierra Leone, people love to learn. So there's a difference between learning and being formally educated. Just because you're formally educated doesn't mean you're intelligent. Because you're an illiterate doesn't mean that you don't lack intelligence. My right. grandmother was not formally educated, my maternal grandmother, but she was a businesswoman, very successful, owned several houses, and made sure all her daughters were in school. That was her dream, and which was fulfilled, of course. So, um, and because I work with adolescent girls, I and when I first started working with them, I was frustrated, to be honest, because there were certain things, I'm like, well, I know this at 13, why don't you? But then I realized, that's again, I had to check my privilege. I'm coming from a different background, so so, in a country like Sierra Leone, you're not taught to learn. You're taught to regurgitate. Right. You're taught to absor- um, absorb, you know. So, having to teach a child how to learn is a very difficult thing. Yeah, critical thinking just yes, in general. Yes, critical yeah. thinking, you know, analysis, you know, that type of thing. It is different, so, um, because kids are eager to learn. They, every time I travel, kids ask me to bring books for them or newspapers, and I do. So, it's not that they don't like to learn, you know. It's just they're not being taught how to learn. So, um, that's one challenge I guess I've had to deal with, not just children or adolescents, but even um, adults, you know, certain adults that uh, may may never have le- left the country, and I present something to them, they're like, oh, well, I've never seen this before, I said, but, but judging from, you know, past uh, or context, you know, but, yeah, so having to use critical thinking, like you said, you know, mm-hmm. deriving something from context, is not something they can do, you know, to connect the pieces, because it's kind of like, okay, Abu has a red ball, what is the color of Abu's ball? Obviously, it's red. But if I say, uh, "What is the shape of the ball?" They're like, "Well, that wasn't given in the text." But you can, you know, infer that the ball is circular because it's a ball. So these are the kind of things that you yeah. kind of had to. These are the kind of gaps, you know, that we, those of us that are in safe spaces or are educators um, in the Sierra Leonean education system, have to fill. Right. You know, so. Um, in itself, it's a challenge, but it can also be rewarding when you fulfill your, your goal. So that's great in that sense. Um, being an educated person, well, I would say semi because you know, a bachelor's degree is not all that nowadays, but um, in Sierra Leone uh, conversing, talking to other Sierra Leoneans, it can be a challenge as well because then you realize that because we both have a bachelor's degree, it doesn't mean that we're educated at the same level. You know, learning doesn't stop in the classroom. I always read articles. You know, I still continue to read as a teacher. and you know, I'm going back to school next year, so I have to read for my exams. So, but some people have the notion that, oh, well, I don't have anything to study for. It, it's all, because that's how we're, even in the States, that's how you're taught. You're supposed to study for a test so you can pass the test. You need to pass the test so that you can graduate. But that's, it's always... What's next? So when mm-hmm. you've reached your pinnacle, what's next? Mm-hmm. So I think you need to teach people the joy of learning just to learn yeah. to learn. Yeah. So yeah. that's it in Sierra Yeah,
0: I've, I've noticed that in my classroom too. Like I have two, this this semester I've just introduced two guiding, essentially guiding values. And the first one is the world needs your voice. And the second one is the details matter. And I think on the world needs your voice part, I think that that is something that they are not taught. And I, some of that is cultural because um, this is such a community-oriented mindset that the, that the idea that my voice matters rather than the voice of the whole um, is Is kind of foreign, but I think also some of it is just that they've not been given the opportunity to formulate their own opinions or think critically about uh, certain things, which is not to say that they don't, Mm. but it, but it is to say that they, they, it's not something they've been trained to do. Um, And so at at every corner, around every corner with my students, I try and give them critical thinking exercises. Um, And at one point uh, early on, I think they've gotten used to me now, but like early on, they like look at me like, what? You want me to do what? Like, why aren't you just lecturing at us, you know? <laughs> um, and at one point I said, this is a critical thinking exercise. So you guys are going to have to think hard on this one. And, um, they're kind of like, ooh. And I had them do it together. Um, and, uh, and then I went around a little bit later. I said, how's it going? And one of my students said, we're thinking very critically. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, so it's been fun to kind of watch them, work that out. Um, but I, I do think that the education system here is a concern for most everybody that I know, um, because it took such a hit during the war that, um, even so sometimes the teachers are not well enough educated to teach. And so, and, um, and so then that means we're just essentially getting generation another generation of um, people who are growing into people who, who they may be educated, in quotes, but don't necessarily have the skills of learning and or teaching. Um, so people like you, I think, are very important. Thank you. You're welcome. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So um, I would say that you are a natural leader. In fact, that's probably like an understatement about you and so uh, what kind of other things that are you doing as a young leader in Sierra Leone um, well apart from girl up
1: and teaching I love nature walks as you know I love to go up to Leicester Peak and just just think you know I love to write poetry recently I've discovered that I, I like to write in general short stories from a very witty perspective but um, I realized I like to write poetry as well I'm not poetry that rhyme, just poetry so i like that as well and mm-hmm. i have some friends who are also poets so we you know um exchange ideas and bounce ideas off one another so i love to do that as well um i love to travel i would love to go to every single country in the world if i can what else i'm a foodie so i actually just started um my food blog section and uh, i'm a blogger so i started my food section um because mostly i talk about traveling and other things so yes I'm excited so I'm going to post that video um very soon in a couple of days I've just finished editing it so yeah that's pretty much what I do just for fun you know in Mm -hmm. Sierra Leone so
0: so what do you think how do you feel about the state of Sierra Leone right now um like do you feel hopeful do you feel discouraged um has it changed a lot since your high school years? Sierra Leone
1: has um changed sometimes for the better sometimes for the worse um Sometimes it's like we go one step forward, but then we go three steps backwards. Mm. And, you know, Ebola, the mudslides, you know, things have not been in our favor, but that notwithstanding, our people are people of hope, you know, a beacon of hope. So it's hard not to be hopeful as well i um, I think I'm everything. I'm an array of feelings. I'm hopeful. I'm um, a bit discouraged as well. You know, things are not moving as they should. Uh, and being in the private sector, it's in my advantage in the sense that, you know, I can control my rates, you know, for clients and I can solicit extra work online because you can do remote work. But a lot of people who are in the public sector, they don't have that same um, opportunities. So I do feel for them as, you know, the prices of things in the market and gas are increasing all the time so it's not good for our economy and it's not good for our currency as well so um, discouraged a bit you know sometimes frustrated as you can in Sierra Leone but Mm -hmm. overall um, I'm hopeful yeah I'm positive you have to be you know you can't always be gloomy so I'm definitely positive about Sierra Leone the young people I see that are being elected into office appointed actually appointed by the new administration which is good you know Mm -hmm. people are actually recognize, not just someone who got it because they're, you know, uh, good friends with the president or something. Right. People are actually being appointed on merit, and that has always been my dream. You know, I, I, I despise nepotism. So, um, I'm really happy that's happening as well. I would like to see more female representation, of course, but I'll take a win when I right. see a win. So, I'm seeing young people, so I'm happy.
0: So, do you, what do you think is the way forward then for Sierra Leone, at this point, like from here? Um,
1: definitely more women, more women, you know, more women, better politics, better Mm -hmm. politics, more women. That's not my slogan. That's from Mm 5050. But, um, yes, we need to see more women in the forefront. There was an article, goodness, um, I'll send, I'll show it to you, Katie, that just really rubbed me the wrong way. I think they're called DW or something. And they published basically, undermining and diminishing the value of first ladies in Africa. Mm -hmm. And they're like, oh, what did they even do? You know, one was a housekeeper, one was out of the kitchen. I just thought it was so rude and derogatory. If they were trying to offend people, that was definitely, you know, um, uh, done. But um, I just feel like, why does everything with Africa have to be, you know, um, associated with something bad? I've never seen a piece about the relevance of first ladies in the Western world, you know, or white first ladies. So I don't know why that particular news outlet decided to focus on African ones. And one of our, one of the, I think they featured about 10 of them. And one of them was our first lady. So our first lady, um, she uh, was an actress. uh, So very uh, bubbly in the arts field. Obviously she was a director, a producer. She's won many awards. She's humanitarian as well. And I think at some point she was a housekeeper. So that was her title. Um, being a housekeeper or something, mm. which I think devalues her and she's so much more. And women are so much more than the women they're married, to, than the men they're married to. So that whole article was just sexist, of course. Mm. So just more positive female representation. I see that AYV has started this new thing called Big Sister, which is essentially mm. like Big Brother, uh, cause they have a Big Brother Africa. So this is Big Sister Sierra Leone. And I haven't watched it mostly because I don't really care for it. Um, it's about a couple of women in a house, you know, just like Big Brother. But um, a lot of people are not looking at the issues. The woman that I see is leading is because more or less she's a slave queen, you know, in quotes but um the second woman who i think would be a good contender and a good face for Sir Leon for this kind of brand i think she is a um a domestic abuse either domestic abuse or a rape survivor sexual assault survivor you know she has actual substance someone who has risen from something someone who has really seen hell and come back from it but uh, the populace is not really concerned about that they they really like this um this woman who is very funny and doesn't speak very well and she's like a caricature character character basically of, right. you know all the struggles and this kind of diminishes all what women have gone through to help through the war efforts the ebola efforts so i want to see a more positive representation of women you know yeah. men slander us left right and center in rap songs but claim they're feminists you know in private so just more Positive representation of women, for sure. Yeah,
0: and I think that that speaks to the need for education across mm. the board, um, better education, more access to education, all of that, and spaces being open, mm-hmm. for sure. All right, when I am interviewing people who are expats or non Sierra Leoneans, um, I'd like to um, I'd like to close the. Conversation with what I call missionary bloopers, um, like what you've done wrong in the course of your time here, um, <laughs> some of the stupid things that you've done. And so um, I know, obviously, you're not a missionary or an expat; so you're from here. But you you did come back home from Tucson after some time away, right? Right. So, um, do you have an example of doing something like culturally wrong when you came before, um, or something that surprised you about coming back to your home country?
1: Uh, hmm, I'm sure there's many what comes to mind um, I guess one time uh, I was in college I came uh, in December and so we have a lot of masquerades so for those who don't know about masquerades so they're usually um, societies that come out hunting societies um, mostly men yeah mm-hmm. I believe they're all our men so they come in very elaborate costumes You know, they could be like goat heads or you know beads you know jewelry very vibrant very vivid um um costumes so i love them you know i grew up with my dad you know taking us to these um these carnivals and you know, spending ridiculous money you know helping the societies because i like them so um some of them uh, you're not allowed to take photos of them because of supernatural reasons. So there was one that I saw, and I knew that it was the one you're not allowed to take pictures at. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was being stubborn, you know, challenger as I am. I said, well, let me just take a quick picture. Oh, no, they caught me. Oh. They caught me, and it was hell. But, you know, luckily everything was sorted. I was able to, you know, agree with them that, okay, I will delete the photo. So you didn't have to pay money or anything? No, 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 yeah. no, 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 But But um, to... The ones that you can take photos of, I mean, it's a nice gesture, you know, like you're allowed to take photos, but I like them So I don't mind giving money. Mm -hmm. So to those ones, yes, I take pictures with the chief and all that, I like that. But um, the ones, oh no, 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 they're ones that you're forbidden, you -hmm. know, exclusively from taking photos of, there should be no photographic evidence of them. So yeah, that was my blooper that I did, (laughs) being Mm -hmm. stubborn. (laughs) (laughs) I love it.
0: Um, All right, well, thanks um, Yasmin for coming and talking to me for a little while and sharing your wisdom and your life Um, I think uh, there is a a richness of diversity here and I think your voice is one that makes it richer so thanks thanks for having me Katie yeah Yeah. let's go um, have dinner yay okay okay so that was Yasmin I hope you enjoyed that conversation you can go to my website and find links to her TED talk (laughs) as well as her website and things like that. If you're interested in following up with her or hearing more of uh, what she has to say. God bless you, friends. Have a great day.